God is our helper. God is our saviour. And that's why we must cry out to the Lord for help and put it in his hands. Please do take a seat. And let me pray. Father God, you are our help in ages past and our hope for years to come. Speak to us from your word this evening to reassure us of your presence and power at work among us, that you may draw us to yourself and lead us home. Amen. Well, if you've been around at the evening service over the last month, then you'll know that we're digging into the Psalms in a sermon series entitled Songs from the Heart. Tonight we come to Psalm 27, so if you grab one of the Bibles in the pews and look that up, I'm sure that would be of great help to you. The Psalms are wonderful prayers from the Old Testament believers, and they model for us how to pray. Often we face circumstances in life, don't we, where we just don't quite know what to pray. We have times of anguish or joy when we can't find the words to express fully our emotions. Well, the Psalms give us the words to say. And I would recommend, if you haven't done this before, is once every few months, take a bit of time to get in the Psalms. Maybe read a Psalm a day for a week and just jot down at the top of the Psalm in pencil what that Psalm is all about. Is it a Psalm of doubt or despair, depression, or a Psalm of praise even? Well, jot it down and the next time that you feel that way, you will know where to go to find the words to express how you're feeling, to find the words for your prayers. Well, tonight's psalm is all about facing up to fear. Please don't jot that down at the top of the psalm in the, in the Bibles and the pews. Um, I could get in big trouble. But it, trust me, um, as we go along, you'll find out this is all about fears. There are all kinds of crazy stuff that we can get worried, anxious, stressed, or uptight about. But I guess for most of us, our, our fear is a little more mundane than that lot. The stuff that most regularly gives us a knot in the stomach or keeps us awake at night is probably a bit more like... What if I can't find a job? What if I stay single for the rest of my life? What if my friends don't really like me? What if that lump really is cancer? What if my kids go off the rails? Those of us who are parents, we, we know we're most vulnerable when it comes to our children, aren't we? And some of us can live with almost constant fear, exam pressures, an unhappy marriage, a recurring illness, or perhaps your company keep talking about laying people off and you think, maybe you're the next. What is it for you? Have I named it yet? What do you think of when Ian asked you to think about your fears earlier on in the service? Well, I think Psalm 27 is one of the great Psalms of the Bible because you will discover that King David lives in your street, your office, your family, it's a real-life psalm for real-life people, as it's more like a documentary than a Hollywood movie. It's the kind of psalm that we understand because David knows what it is to live with fear. 
verse 6 suggests that he's surrounded by enemies. Verse 12 speaks of the twisted way they plot against him. His concerns loom large over every word he writes. And as he writes, David teaches us two lessons to help us to overcome our fears. Here's the first one. Take confidence in the Lord in the midst of trouble. Take a look with me, will you, at verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries, adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Like a child waking up from a scary dream, in the darkness, David turns on the light. And the light that blazes into his troubles is the light of the Lord. He can face any trouble because the Lord is with him in the midst of those troubles. It's like he puts his fears alongside the Lord and trying to figure out which one's bigger, the Lord versus his fears. <laughs> and he realizes it's no contest. It's the Lord. He's always the winner. And his confidence isn't the vain boasting, the, the smack talk that you get before football matches as opposing fans talk up their chances. No, David seems to be reflecting here on his experience of trusting God when he's been up against it in the past. And boy, was he up against it. Verse 2 has echoes of David going against Goliath, who threatened to feed his flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field when he was done with them. But in the ultimate little versus large contest, it was Goliath who stumbled and fell. Verse 3 is a bit trickier to pin down, but it could speak of the time he was pursued by Saul and his men. But just as it looked as if Saul had David in his net, he was distracted by news from right across the other side of the country. And David got away. And as David looks back on God's faithful protection, he takes confidence. No matter who or what the opposition is, one plus God is an unassailable majority. That's David's experience. You pitch up with God on your side and ultimately you will be a winner. And as trouble has found him here yet again, he clings on to that experience. He clings to it. Now, don't know about you, but that flies in the face of what quite often gives us confidence in the midst of trouble, doesn't it? If you're anything like me, you'll tend to cling to the hope that one day the, the trouble will just be over. It'll, it'll, you'll wake up one morning and it will have just disappeared. Be magically gone. And then you can get on with your life. We sometimes go through hard times and we think to ourselves, if I can only get through this week, this month, this year, this crisis, then things will be fine. Yet when we do get through that crisis, there's always another one looming just over the horizon. There's always more trouble in life. Isn't, isn't there? And I guess the first thing that Psalm 27 reminds us of is the problem that we all face, the problem of unrealistic expectations. We have unrealistic expectations of work or relationships or children or church, of life generally. So perhaps you get married to some handsome, witty Prince Charming, as, uh, as my wife had the experience of, of doing, of course. 
And then you find out that he leaves his dirty washing on the floor and he doesn't rinse the sink out after he shaves. And his breath stinks like a camel in the morning. <laughs> a sick camel. As my wife may also have experienced. Or not, you'll have to ask her about that. But we have these romanticized ideals, don't we, about our ideal job or our ideal church, just as much as our ideal man or our ideal woman. But they don't exist. You see, unrealistic expectations come when we do not listen to the Bible. The Bible says that sin has permeated every millimeter of planet Earth, and there's no escaping it this side of heaven. We live in a world where deceit and disappointment are an everyday occurrence. And there's no inoculation from sinful men and women and the things that they do to us or the things that we do to them. So we should not be surprised when we are buffeted by the trouble and the turmoil of this life. There is the consequences of our sin. David understood this and knew that when his current troubles were over, there would only be more troubles on the way. So his primary concern here was not to look for an escape hatch to give him security, but to look to the Lord, which is verses four to six, isn't it? As David prays, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the rock of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Verse 4 is an incredible, extraordinary prayer, is it not? Here's David, besieged by trouble and hardship and enemies. And what does he pray for? He doesn't pray for power or control or victory or retribution. No, his one thing, his number one prayer request is to live with God and to see his beauty. Which doesn't mean that David wanted to live in church all the time. There's some weeks where I feel like that's actually my life, but that's not what David wanted here. Nor does it mean that he saw God as some work of art to be admired from a distance. Oh, that's a, that's a masterpiece. Oh, that's magnificent. It's beautiful. No, David is speaking figuratively of longing to enjoy unbroken communion with God in order to engage with him and worship his glory and know his will. He longs above all else to love God and know God and lean on God and find purpose and strength in God. And it was through such a life of walking in God that David knew he would be delivered. He knew he'd be delivered. In the day of trouble, God would protect him as a tent gives shelter from a storm. I think in David's case, this was actually uh, sheltering from the sun, but this is Britain, so I've contextualized that a little bit. In the day of trouble, God would protect him as a tent gives shelter from the rain, or a rock, a high rock, gives safety from the floods. Why? Because David was already there with God, sheltering in him daily, standing in him, his way, his truth, his life, every day. The time to get in the tent or up on the rock is not as the storm hits. You get caught out if you only ever run to God when the troubles come. Safety is only found in God, so live in him, live in him. 
David does just that. As he says to the Lord, you are my rock, and the one thing I ask of you is to live with you. Which begs the question, doesn't it? What's your one thing? What's the one thing you can't live without? What is the one thing that you reckon would make you happy and secure right now? Folks, if it's not the Lord, you'll be deeply disappointed. Because at some point, that one thing of yours, it will, it will disappear. It will crack. It will disappoint you. We all create security systems to make us feel safe in this broken world. We carve out some rock on which we can stand. It may be money or relationships or our own achievements. If you've got where you, you are by the sweat of your own brow, then it's tempting to trust your own instincts, isn't it? But no created thing can hold the eternal needs of our hearts. Only God can. God is the only one who doesn't crack under pressure or go off in a huff or decrease in value or run through our fingers like sand. He is the only safe place in a world full of fears. The Psalms tell us a profound truth. The truth that God is enough. God is ultimately all I need. So firstly, take confidence in the Lord in the midst of trouble. And secondly, cry out to the Lord in the midst of trouble. I was reflecting over the holidays about the fact that I've been in pastoral ministry for um, just over 28 years. Ever since I first led a Sunday school group when I was age 15. And I don't know what is scarier uh, about that, the fact that I was let loose on a group of young people when I was so young and clueless myself, or the fact that it was so long ago, it just makes me feel desperately old. But as I dwelt on that a little bit longer, the other thing that struck me is that I've led a lot of groups and I've met a lot of people over that time, and my approach in trying to counsel them has changed quite a lot. At first, I was such a typical bloke as I would try to find the solution to whatever problem they had come to me with. I will sort it out for you. I will get you fixed. Now my instinct tends much more, not all the time, but much more towards asking them, have you spoken to the Lord about this? Have you sought his wisdom first? And in the rest of the psalm, David models for us how to do that as he cries out to the Lord in the midst of his trouble. So here's step one. Cry out for mercy which is what David does in verse seven. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. True prayer is never presumptuous, but rather responds to God's gracious initiative. Whatever miracle you think you need tonight in life, the miracle you most need is God mercifully listening to your prayers. I mean, think about that, that God the God of the whole wide universe would listen to you, would listen to me, and would answer us. Isn't that amazing? And it's even more amazing when I look into my own heart and I, I see that too often I'm more interested in my own kingdom than God's kingdom. Too often I have eternity amnesia as I try to find satisfaction in temporary things, in the temporary things of the world that just do not last. Too often I'm only praying because I've only gone and created a mess by my own selfishness yet again. But God says, I can still pray to him in the midst of that, and he will hear me, and he will answer me. So if you've drifted from God because of disappointment with him, or because you've, you've drifted away and been disloyal and done your own thing, 
like David, you need to come back to God and say, have mercy on me. And you also need to, step two, cry out for help. As David goes on to do in verse nine, hide not your face from me, he says, turn not your servant away in anger. Oh, you have been my help. O you who have been my help, cast me, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. And once again, it's amazing that, that God would ever help us, isn't it? When we come to the Lord for help, he has every reason to, to hide his face from us or just plain turn us away. But if you are trusting in Christ, you will never hear from God those two awful words. Go away. Get lost. Why? Because God's wrath, his anger, was poured out on Christ in our place. He will never hide his face or turn his back on us or pour his anger out on us because Jesus quenched God's wrath on the cross. Because God has said, go away to another there. God turned his face from his son so that we could be rescued. For God is my salvation. God is my help, says David. And when we really understand that we are dependent on God for everything, it gives us enormous freedom in our daily lives. When we realize that we are just not God, we realize that we're not in control of anything. Sometimes we have this messianic complex going on where we, need to, where we think we just need to make everything happen, desperately trying to pull all of the strings to keep life moving forward. And often we feel totally overwhelmed by it. And as we fail, which we will inevitably do, we end up feeling guilty and burned, out, burned up and stressed over stuff that we have no ultimate control over. Well, God is our helper. God is our savior. And that's why we must cry out to the Lord for help and put it in his hands and rest in him. Step three then we must cry out for teaching. Verse 11, teach me your ways, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Don't go to the wrong university, says David. Now, if you're in Cypher tonight and um, you've just accepted a place at Cardiff, don't worry, I'm not gonna stand up here in the pulpit and say to you tonight, mm, I think Sheffield would have been a bit better. <laughs> Glasgow, probably, yeah. <laughs> Glasgow, definitely, but I'm not talking about that kind of university. I'm talking about the university of the world. Every day we get bombarded with messages from this university as we hear thousands of voices clamoring for our attention at work, at home, on the TV, radio, the internet. And they are telling us how we should think and, and how we should be and, and what the good life looks like. And we are in danger of being led astray by those voices. For what they peddle seems so attractive. It can be so easy to be sucked in by the gospel according to the BBC or the gospel according to Cosmopolitan magazine. But don't get taken in, says David. True wisdom only comes from God as he asked to be a student in God's school. And one key characteristic of being a student in God's school is having a healthy cynicism about our own or the world's wisdom. You see, one of the results of living in a fallen world is that it turns us into fools. Because the Bible tells us time and time again that the definition of folly is not being a bit daft, but is not trusting God. But this world also makes us believe that we are wise. It's kind of like when someone drinks too much alcohol. 
They say and do the stupidest things. They become a fool, but they think they're smart. They think they're the man. They think they're funny. When we turn from God, we think we're smart. We think we're the man or the woman, but we actually become fools. That's what sin does to us. It makes us foolish and arrogant. And the temptation to think we know it all, I find, grows more the older I get. So don't lean on your own wisdom. Like David, long for the Lord to be your teacher. Ask him to do that every step of the way. And finally, step four, cry out for patience, which is what David preaches to himself in the final two verses of this psalm. Verse 13, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. It'll be no surprise to you that researchers recently looked into the defining, what the defining aspects of our culture are. And impatience was one of the top ones. We just hate having to wait, don't we? And behind our frustration with waiting is the idea that our agendas are so important that we shouldn't have to wait. We like to think that we're the main actor in the story. We're the hero of the story. But that's just not true. God is king. And when you wait on God, you learn that your story is not ultimate. You've been created to be part of something that is larger than your wants, your needs, your feelings. You're connected to something that is bigger than your relationships. You are waiting because God has said that you are part of his kingdom. So when I am expecting him to answer good and godly prayers, I have to wait. And it helps me to remember that that it's not all about me. It humbles me. As when we pray, we do not stay in control as if God was some kind of heavenly vending machine. So we simply slot in our prayer and then just stand back and, and out comes exactly what we want. In prayer, we acknowledge that we are not in control and we step out in faith and we depend on the Lord and we learn to depend on the Lord. And sometimes we are left to wait because it helps us to understand that the things that we desire will not satisfy the longing of our hearts. Only God will. And I must learn, we must learn, to rest in him. As I don't need all God's things, I don't need all God's blessings. What I need is God himself, for God is enough. Let me finish with a poem by Paul Tripp that summarizes the essence of this psalm. I'm not afraid, and it's not because I'm strong or wise. I'm not afraid, and it's not because I have power or position. I'm not afraid, but it's not because I have health and wealth. I'm not afraid, and it's not because my circumstances and relationships are easy. I'm not afraid for one glorious reason. I have been lit by the Lord of light. In the darkness of this world, I no longer walk in the night, for I have been given the light of life. I'm not afraid because light lives in me. This is the one amazing reality, and this reality gives me rest. I have been rescued from darkness and transported into the light. And I'm not afraid. Let me pray.
One thing have I asked of the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Father God, you know everything about us. You know how easily our eyes wander from you. Forgive us when we've sought other rocks to stand on, for when we thought that they could be our refuge. And help us to see that true safety is found in Christ alone, that we would cling to Christ, that we may know him and love him and serve him and live for him. Amen.